Welcome to The Craft. I'm your host, Mae Globus. This podcast is a collection of intimate conversations on artistry, mastery, and life with talented, passionately curious creatives and entrepreneurs. Most are dear friends, some are those I've admired from afar. I hope you enjoy these conversations, this exploration of the humanity that connects all of us as much as I do having them. Thank you for being here and for listening. This episode is brought to you by Before, an incredible new self-care brand that just launched their first products, a line of purifying toothpastes. I'm obsessive about my teeth and brush them usually three times a day, so I'm super excited to be using Before. It ticks off many boxes of what a good toothpaste should be. Their custom supermint flavor actually tastes really good, and the consistency is silky, and at the same time, it doesn't leak out of the tube, which is a total pet peeve of mine. It's also non-abrasive, so it doesn't destroy your tooth enamel. All the harmful ingredients have been replaced by clean alternatives, and their custom blend of fluoride and dentist-approved ingredients totally promotes optimal mouth health. Before also deeply cares about our planet. Their tubes are made from 100% recyclable plant-based sugarcane and creates 50% less carbon footprint than traditional toothpaste tubes. As you all can tell from the show, I'm a huge fan of good, purposeful design, and let me tell you, the design and color palette of these are beautiful. The tube stands upright on your counter and makes your bathroom look minimal and chic. Visit their website, before.com, and enter the code CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T, to receive a free tube with purchase. I'm a huge fan of what they stand for. You won't be sorry, and your teeth and the planet will thank you. As a number of you know, I'm also a certified sound therapy practitioner and founder of Oto Healing, a sound therapy studio and practice. Sound has been a healing modality through many cultures for thousands of years. Oto's approach to sound is rooted in both art and science, the art being the history of sound, the science being quantum physics, biology, brainwave states, and more. All listeners of the show get 15% off their first private one-hour session. Visit otohealing.com to book yours now. Peyton Nyquist has a way of being that makes others feel truly seen and heard. As the founder and CEO of Numinous, his company aims to empower people to heal through the development and delivery of innovative mental health care and access to safe, evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapies. And there is no doubt that Peyton is genuine in his calling to help others find healing and well-being in their lives. His parents made their way from Manitoba to the West and settled in Deep Cove in North Vancouver. Growing up there was culturally formative for him, Living on the border of a First Nations reservation, he was exposed to Indigenous culture at a young age. Severe chronic gut pain, however, was a constant companion from the day he was born, and his mother suffered from substance use disorder, eventually becoming sober when Peyton was 12. His father was in finance, and Peyton found himself in the industry right out of high school. At 30 years old, he was managing the Vancouver office of one of the biggest independent brokerage firms in the country. Yet he kept on getting more ill, in and out of the hospital several times a week. Feeling exhausted of options, Peyton decided to do something different. He booked a flight to Costa Rica and did his first ayahuasca ceremony. After that, he never had a chronic pain symptom again. Coming back home, he wanted to give back to what saved his life and reached out to nonprofits to see what he could do. Soon, he was talking to Health Canada, MAPS, and members of Vancouver's psychedelic community. At a second ayahuasca retreat, he met the renowned Gabor Maté's daughter and soon was connected to Gabor, who 
became a mentor and supporter. All of this finally led to starting Numinous, which now has multiple locations in Canada and across the U.S. It offers traditional mental health services, ketamine-assisted therapy, works with MAPS on their MDMA work, supports a number of psilocybin trials, organizes community experiences, such as their recent concert tour with musician East Forest, and more. In this conversation, we explore how his mother grew up as a Mennonite and left the religion but never lost her faith her instrumental role in supporting Peyton's own spirituality and his healing. Society's unhealthy compartmentalization between our doing and our being. Healing our relationship with plant medicine and nature. Psychedelics not being a silver bullet. The Genesis story of Numinous. Psychedelic accessibility and integration. The ways his team inspires him. The huge cultural shift in the psychedelic landscape right now. Being in charge of one's consciousness how sound creates a safe space during a psychedelic experience, and much more. Please enjoy this very open conversation with a kind, wise, and humble seeker, culture changer, and way shower, Peyton Nyquist. Peyton Nyquist, welcome to The Craft. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you here. I feel like you and I were talking about this the other day, actually, that we've been like ships passing in the night <laughs> on several occasions. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very glad that we're here in person and and getting to know each other, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? I'm good. Yeah. Grateful to be here. And, and as you said, it feels like um, we have many, many one degrees of separation. So it's nice to close the close the gap a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'd love to learn more about you. So let's go back in time. Tell me about growing up in Deep Cove in North Mm Van. Yeah. Um, My family is actually from uh, Manitoba. My my dad was from Winnipeg and my mom was from uh, Steinbach, Manitoba, actually. And uh, so prairie folks that moved out to Deep Cove, out to the coast, and um, loved growing up in Deep Cove. was really, I would say for myself, quite a, um, a formative experience in growing up in Deep Cove. We lived right on uh, the, the border of the reservation down in Deep Cove, and I went to uh, an elementary school that was kind of, it was always called to me like a half-and-half half school, like is, is sort of what they would name it as, and so got to be exposed to... Um, indigenous culture and and things like that that was really uh, a special experience for myself um but yeah growing up in deep cove was also on a kind of for myself i i was struggling a lot even as a, a young person i had severe chronic pain that i was um pretty much born with and um was quite a an exploration at that time and um became really important for me in regards to my own mental health. Um, I, my mom struggled with uh, substance use disorder and got sober when I was 12. And it was really impactful for me in that obviously it's, it's my mom, but it's watching somebody who you care so deeply about become the person that you hope that they could see for themselves through really dealing with, with their own mental health. And that just really hit for me um, as someone who was really suffering physically um, was this recognition that there was a correlation between my own mental health and my physical health. And my mom, you know, kind of the first thing she said to me when she came back from 
from rehab was, um, you know, sorry about the last 12 years and, and you might want to start talking to somebody. And, um, I took that really seriously. And, and so in my kind of mid teens became very passionate about mental health, um, became something of like a, a mental health advocate in my community. Um, and, and that was really kind of twofold is when I had a lot of friends who I felt like could maybe benefit from some of the things that I was doing. And, um, and I just didn't want to be the only kid in therapy. So, so some friends were some friends with you, that's some right. allies. That's right. That's right. So that really kind of put my life on, on a, quite a trajectory and, and mm-hmm. now here today. So. Yeah. And, and you're calling now, which will, we'll get to in a bit. Mm-hmm. I'm just reflecting on what you were saying about your mom and, and what she said coming back from rehab. That's, it's really quite beautiful that she said to you, mm-hmm. you know, I think that you should look in this. It's almost a, an acknowledgement and recognition that things may have been, you know, passed along to you, or you may have seen things that yeah. need some looking at. For sure. And, and I think, um, you know, it's, it's this, this path is not a, it's not an individual path. And, and I think, you know, the one thing that was, I'm so grateful for, for my mom was, um, including me in the journey. You know, a lot of the times we feel isolated in, in, you know, taking care of our own mental health. And it was really, um, you know, very vulnerable for her to, to take some accountability for her part, but also, inspire me to take accountability for my part too. And, Mm. you know, we can, we can point a lot of fingers at, you know, why we're, you know, why do we have anxiety? Why do we have depression? All of these kinds of things. And obviously our parents are usually the, the place that we go. Um, but this was really, you know, inclusive and it was really, um, let's do this, let's, let's do this together and, and, you know, hold each other accountable and, you know, that, that continues to this day. Me and my mom actually spent two weeks in Peru together this summer doing ceremonies in the mountains. And so it's really been this kind of beautiful, um, partnership in, um, exploring, you know, our, our own mental health and, and supporting one another through that. So how wonderful to have an open parent yes, to, yeah. to doing this. Yeah. Well, tell me more about her personality. I'd love to, yeah. to learn more and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and even your, and your father too. I'd love yeah. to get a sense of yeah. who raised you. Yeah. My mom, um, I would say I get my, I get my spirituality from my mom. Um, you know, my mom grew up, uh, a Mennonite and, you know, went through a, a lot of her trauma stems from from that system. But what was always really beautiful and inspiring to me was she, even going through what she experienced through, um, I don't even want to say the system, but the the some of the people who are involved in that that kind of religious structure. Um, she never lost her her connection to spirituality. There was not this resentment of, you know, the organized religion that she was in. She really held that while that wasn't serving her, that but the the kind of light that was there, that connection to something bigger than herself stayed really committed and she held that through, you know, she found um, the AA community that's been really inspiring for her and, and a real big support for her. But um, it was just language that she was always willing to bring 
into our household when when we were growing up and and um she's a she's a big energy she's um you know she's traveled the world she she when she got sober she became very pat she kind of um she found uh running as as really her outlet to to channel some of that energy and next thing you knew she was doing for anybody who's who's from Vancouver probably knows the Knacker Marathon which is essentially um it's a marathon that goes from Lions Bay uh up Cypress down Cypress up Grouse down Grouse up Seymour down Seymour and into Deep Cove and she's done that a bunch of times and she's mm-hmm. an adventurous she's she's a big adventure adventure woman and uh she's really my um she she's my big inspiration for healing mm. um and uh and I owe a lot to to yeah my own healing uh with her she she visited a lot of emergency rooms with me and and has really kind of been there mm. for me through all of that um yeah that's yeah. really beautiful it sounds like in in many ways and at different points in her life she freed herself for sure for sure for sure. And, and the courage to do that. I mean, um, you know, it's, I think for her, what was really hard was, um, a lot of her friend group and stuff like that. When, when she was getting sober that you lose, you know, there's, there's a, a shared experience that you maybe lose with some of those people where it's friendships built around, you know, partying or, or whatever it is. Um, and that just wasn't serving her when she came back. And so I think, you know, the courage to really, um, be bold and, and do something, um, that is not necessarily the societal norm and, and certainly not in her demographic. Um, it was, it was a really courageous thing mm-hmm. and, and she's can just kind of continue to commit to that. So. Yeah. So, so wonderful. Yeah. yeah to have that yeah. surrounding you from yeah. young to, to now this special, like always been a special relationship with your mom. Mm-hmm. And how about your dad? What's your dad like? Yeah, my dad, uh, my dad would be one of my greatest teachers for sure. Um, my dad, uh, him and I were actually, uh, we, we were business partners for, for about 10 years, which, um, anybody who's worked with a family member in, in business, it's a, it's an interesting challenge. Um, but my dad is, is just a, a huge hearted person. Um, he really, really cares about people. Um, and, and that's always been consistent. And, uh, and I, I hope that I, I can share a little bit of, uh, of that that he carries because it's beautiful. Mm. And, um, that's something that's always, always stuck with him is just the, the caring for other people and, uh, and the wanting what's best for other people. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's hugely important to care for others, you mm-hmm. know, beyond oneself. Mm-hmm. Tell me about you as a young kid. Oof. Um, I was, um, me as a young kid, I would say I, I grew up having to be really responsible Um, and I did that. I was definitely the kind of, um, always smile on my face, people pleaser type. Um, and that was, you know, I, I had a young, I have a, I have a younger brother who I felt very responsible for growing up, you know, especially with, with, uh, parents struggling with addiction. Um, it's, it's, 
there's a, there's a responsibility that's, that's placed on you. And, um, yeah, I navigated that with, with, yeah, being always the happy kid, um, you know, really not wanting people to see, um, my struggle or, or see what I was suffering with. And that wasn't, I would say that wasn't to, um, hide something necessarily, but it was, um, I guess this, this not wanting other people, I didn't want other people to struggle, um, because I was struggling. And that was probably one of the harder things with, with my mom was she really took on my suffering. And that for me felt very disparate. It felt very disparaging to, um, be suffering and then have the people who you're relying on for support to be struggling as well. I wanted, you know, I, I wanted there to be hope and I wanted there to be, um, positivity around me because, um, what I was experiencing was so hard. And so, um, that, that kind of just came out as, you know, I definitely, you know, like to have a good time and, and, um, but it was, it was complicated for sure. Um, to have this kind of totally other experience happening for me on a, kind of internal, personal level, so. That's a lot to carry for someone so young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in a way, um, and I'm not sure, I don't mean to project anything, but, you know, when those things are happening and you have a smile on your face, like I can resonate with some of that, with how my childhood went as well. And it's almost like you're you're doing it also to protect your family Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. so that others don't see what's going on. Totally, totally. And I, and I think the thing that I was always very conscious of as well is, um, you know, both of my parents had a, an, uh, a very, very challenging upbringing. And, um, I think very early on, I knew that resentment, um, for what I was experiencing wasn't going to get me anywhere. Um, being angry wasn't going to get me anywhere. And, that led me to have a lot of compassion for my parents. Um, and I didn't want them, there was this not wanting to tell them things or, or not wanting them to know how badly I was struggling because I didn't want to put more on them. I, I didn't blame them for their experience, but there was also this kind of accountability or, or, um, responsibility that I was kind of taking on there. And, um, not to say that that was good nor bad. It just, it just was. Um, mm. and I'm grateful. Um, I think that that taught me a lot of resiliency. Um, I would say it was hard to find a lot of, um, it's hard to find a lot of self-compassion when you're not allowing others to be compassionate for you as well. And I would say if there was a part of that, that was really hard for me was, was that finding, my own self-compassion because I was just holding it myself. And, um, and that was a hard learning for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And armor and a, a way to survive mm-hmm. everything going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. Yeah, no, no, my pleasure. And as we move away from your childhood and away from your teens, now you're building your adult life. Mm-hmm. Your your career was in, in finance for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this journey and, <laughs> and how in reflection when you look back on it, given what you're doing now, what what the contrast has taught you. Yeah, sure. Um, 
you know, I was probably, I feel like I was one of the least likely to end up in, in the finance industry. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it definitely has its, um, uh, projections and, and things and, and certainly warranted of, um, but I grew up, my, my, my dad was in the finance business and, and I grew up around that, that community and, and it was really around, um, you know, in Vancouver, it's a lot of like new industry finance and, and support of startup companies and things like that. And I loved how much people interaction there was. And that's really kind of what drew me to, to get involved. And it was really pretty much right out of high school, um, and I think at that time, too, I was kind of like, well, I don't really know anything else. I've sort of grown up in this industry. And so that's that's where I'm going to go. Um, I kind of naively I always wanted to do something that was going to, you know, hopefully help people. And, and as an 18 year old, uh, naively thought that, you know, trying to make people more money was was going to make them happier and very, very quickly learned that that uh, certainly was not always the case. Um but it was a lot of beautiful learning. It was a lot of learning about um, how to start organizations and and how um, it's it's interesting to sit on the that side of the table in regards to you know finding resources to to start or to find resources to take ideas and and add gravity and matter to them really. And I and it was in, I was always very inspired by watching people take an idea and and bring it to life and um that was something that was as i watched that and as i learned from so many different people um who were doing this um i really started to sit with like what what does that mean for me what what of that is inspiring to me and um you know it was it was kind of interesting as i was going along that path um staying really connected to my mental health journey, my physical health journey um, at that point in time. Um, really, no matter what I was doing, my, my physical symptoms just continued to get worse and worse. And it was interesting, you know, at 30 years old, um, I was managing um, the Vancouver office for one of the largest independent brokerage firms in the country. Um, it was very successful. And I, uh, and I was just getting more and more sick. Um, actually my most kind of on paper, I guess, most financially successful week of my life. I, I spent that whole week in the hospital and I remember sitting in the hospital and just going like, if this is what success is supposed to be, like, forget it. Uh, uh you can have it all. I, I just want to be healthy. And, um, that was a, a very interesting kind of moment for me um and it and it taught me a lot about culture and and what was interesting was you know as I was managing the brokerage firm I was in and out of the hospital probably towards the end two three days a week and and I wasn't telling anybody about that not because I didn't feel like there was space but there was a part of me that felt like that was that was what I had to endure in order to be successful. Like it was this, you know, thing that I had to bear. Um, and so, uh, that just became more and more isolating. Uh, and, 
and led me to a point of really kind of hopelessness, I guess. Um, and, and it's just in the, in the correlation, I guess, to, you know, the finance industry is there's this, um, yeah, there's this real kind of, um, compartmentalizing that I saw a lot of the time of like, you know, I was, I was a young person and, and I led that, that, that firm really trying to be from a heartfelt place. Um, I was not the, you know, let's take everybody out and party. I was actually the, the dependable was in the, in the office at six 30 every morning. I never missed a morning. And, and I was, we had a lot of very young people who worked for us who, um, I tried to connect with them on a very personal level and it was, it was kind of unique in the, in the finance industry at the time. But, um, it was just, yeah, it was showing me the importance that you can't compartmentalize our, our doing with our being. And Mm. I saw a lot of that. I saw these young people who, you know, felt like they had to be a certain way when they were at work. Meanwhile, you know, their personal lives were, were very different. And I think I tried to bring as much of my personal life into what I was doing, which, you know, I was always kind of like the anti fine. I, I had a strong allergic reaction to wearing a tie and <laughs> had tattoos and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so I didn't really fit the the finance mold, maybe. I mean, that's my projection, but, um, but yeah, it, 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 for me was like, I can't, I don't want to, I want to be able to be my full self regardless of, of where I'm spending my time. And there was just a lot of misalignment, I think there for me, um, and wanting to find something with, with deeper purpose and, and again, as I was kind of getting closer to that, the, the kind of sicker I was getting as well. Mm. And it's such a disconnect that so many of us live that way, that we can't be fully embodied in, in, in who we are. So, mm-hmm. you know, your, your team was lucky that you were trying to bring that into their, into their worlds and their lives and, and their perspective. And also, it's, we're not meant to just survive in this life mm-hmm. or endure you know, mm-hmm. we we really should be able to thrive in, in the best way possible. And so it was an ayahuasca ceremony that really, really helped you. I'd love to <laughs> to know more about this. I, I had my first, as I was telling you um, the other day, mm-hmm. my first major psychedelic macro ceremony mm-hmm. and how profoundly changing that was. So I'd love to hear how it was so profoundly changing for you and your health. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I was, I was at that point in time really feeling out of options. I, I really exhausted everything. Um, and I'd never had a psychedelic experience before, um, as someone who, who grew up, you know, in a family that struggled with substance abuse. Uh, I had my own kind of feelings about, recreational drug use and it was something that I really avoided um but was really out of options and you know I listened to lots of podcasts and I'd read lots of books and I I'd kind of really dove into understanding and I was at Lionsgate Hospital one day and and the way that my pain showed up was severe gut pain so it would it would start as this this yeah very bad gut pain and and within 30 minutes it would escalate to like um 
I, the best way I can explain it is just extremely overwhelming pain. And um, fortunately, I live not far from uh, from Lionsgate Hospital, and so I was a, a frequent emergency room uh, participant. But um, but was was in the overnight ward at, at Lionsgate Hospital, and I said to my now wife Victoria, I said, "You got to trust me, but I got to do something different." And uh, and you know, told her I was going to go and do ayahuasca, and she kind of looked at me and she said, "So let me get this straight, you're." Your plan to cure your gut pain is to go drink, uh, you know, an Amazonian brew in the the jungle. (laughs) I said, yeah. And Um, purge. Yeah, and purge. Exactly. And she's like, okay. Um, But I I booked my flights while I was in the hospital and uh, went home and packed my bags and and got on a plane. And um, it was a really... um, I, I really don't want to paint the picture of a panacea and, and we were talking about this, but it's really, um, I would say the work started then. Um, it, it wasn't the, the completion. It was, it was really the beginning. And, um, but we did, we did four ceremonies down in, in Costa Rica. And, um, after, after those ceremonies, I, I never had any chronic pain symptoms ever again. And, there was one ceremony, you know, it, it was interesting. I, you know, I'd watched all the YouTube videos and I'd read the trip reports and I had these kind of expectations of, you know, visions and all of this kind of stuff. And, and that was very much not my experience. I, I had this very, um, it was very physical. It wasn't cosmic. It wasn't any of those things. And um, it was interesting sitting in the ceremonies there was, and, and I think reflecting back when I was talking about that self-compassion was the amount of judgment that I had of like, I'm doing this wrong or um, maybe I am like really broken because I've heard about everybody else's experiences and I'm having a very different experience. And I think that's really important for people who are looking to do this work is is um, you really have to try and separate yourself from other people's experiences. And so I was kind of going through this whole process and, and it was actually finally like the last night and the last ceremony and, and went through this experience and I just knew that it was, it was fixed. But the, the message that very much came back was, um, that it's fixed, but, but I now have to take care of it. And, um, it was interesting, I guess, just connected to that too was, um, yeah, was, was, as I was going down, you know, I had this, this big passion for mental health. And as I was going down to go drink ayahuasca, I was kind of going, well, you know, if there's, um, you know, something, uh, if this kind of goes the, the way, uh, I want it to really, um, or goes according to plan that maybe this is something that I try and support or get involved with. And in that same ceremony on that last night, I have this profound, healing experience and then also get this message of um this is way too important for you to be involved with screwing up so leave it alone and i kind of get this like strong um uh screw off from from ayahuasca <laughs> <laughs> uh which is which is funny because you know most people and and this ceremony there was about 80 people in the ceremony and you know the end of the retreat everybody's ready to quit their jobs and wear ponchos and crystals and become yoga instructors in the woods and 
Meanwhile, ayahuasca's just told me to beat it. And, <laughs> and, um, and it was just, it was a very interesting, um, yeah, it was an interesting message to receive and, and led me on this very interesting path now with, with where Numinous is. But, mm-hmm. um, but just to stay with the, the healing part of it, it was, um, it, the, the thing that really brought me to healing was actually, um, I had to come to this place of deep acceptance of maybe there's actually nothing for me to fix. Maybe I'm actually just supposed to have this pain. Maybe this is just a part of my experience and maybe, maybe that's perfect. Maybe there's nothing wrong. And, um, I, I was brought to this place in ceremony. It was extremely challenging and it wasn't like, you know, maybe there's nothing to, to fix. And, but maybe if I get close to that, maybe I'll get fixed. It was really this like, no, you, you, you're going to be hands and knees in acceptance of this is, this is actually perfect and there's nothing wrong. And what if this is just this, what if this is just your human experience? Um, Mm. and, um, and that was so profound for me to just, I think, connect to my own worthiness and my own, um, yeah, just that, that I, there's nothing wrong with me and, um, I'm, I'm having this experience, but inherently, you know, that there's really nothing wrong. And, and once I'd really reached that kind of level, again, going back to just self-compassion, um, that's when the shift really happened, but I had to really feel it. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Sometimes, you know, the feeling of it, the, the somatic feeling is very different than cerebrally trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to feel that, that pain or that love and, 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 and have it in your, in your bones to truly know mm-hmm. what it's, what it's like or what it is. How liberating for you to finally accept i i can i i don't know if i'm projecting but i imagine that it was you know freeing and liberating it was it was almost it was a a, it was bizarre in a lot of ways like it was um it was kind of just this like well of course you know like this (laughs) that was really the immediate thing um and i would say you know, I, I had replaced it with this real, again, felt sense of being connected to something the the place that that brought me to is being connected to something much bigger than myself. And, um, I would say liberating and, um, a real knowing that, um, that, that that had moved, but a real knowing like, oh, I, I really have to commit to this, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and this just being myself, I, I really have to, I, I've been granted a great, uh, gift in both having the pain and now not having the pain. And, um, and I need to treat that as such. Mm-hmm. And that's that maintenance that mm-hmm. you're talking about. And you were mm-hmm. saying when you were going to do your ayahuasca ceremony, uh, the work began there but there's so much work that happens after (laughs) Mm -hmm. integration is you really have to dedicate and commit to it um you know for for me and the way i view it is psychedelics are not a silver bullet no they do not fix in that moment when you get back on that plane and go home it actually blows the doors wide open on so many different different 
things, the shadows and the beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's so important to have that integrative support. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's just a couple of things on that. I, I think one of the things that I think we've tried to do in the West and when we talk about integration, you know, it's a very active conversation in regards to psychedelics at the moment. Um, and it's, and nobody seems to have really like figured out, like there's, there's this trying to figure out integration, I guess. And, um, I think integration is just your life. It's, it's the commitment to how you're going to live your life going forward. And if you look at, you know, the cultures and indigenous cultures that have worked with psychedelics for a long time, you know, their lives are what we talk about in regards to practices for integration. They live in community. They have a shared language around these experiences. They, they have support. There's, there's just a way of living there that is very different from, you know, we live in apartment buildings and we don't know, you know, the people who we live literally live stacked on top of. And, um, I think there's this, this coming back to a, a more community oriented and a connected way of living that, um, that is really necessary in order to do this work. You know, healing doesn't happen in a vacuum. You, you have to have community and, and people around you that you can articulate, you know, how you're feeling and, and what these experiences are like for you. Um, or else it just becomes increasingly isolating and that, you know, can do in a lot of times one of two things either feeds the ego and makes you feel like this is some special thing that that just happens for you um which has its own you know uh pitfalls to it um or becomes very isolating and and you start to um you know judge that experience and, and that you know, that has a lot of challenges, obviously, with it as well. But mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things also that, that one of my teachers talks to me about, too, is, um, you know, especially with psychedelics, you hear this term plant medicine. And there's this lot of like calling psychedelics medicine. And, um, you know, that comes a lot from from some of the South American cultures. But I don't think we've healed our relationship with that word medicine in the West. And, you know, you mentioned psychedelics not being a silver bullet and our, our relationship with medicine in the West is this is something external that we take that fixes us. And that's not psychedelics. And, and my teacher says, you know, that, that trying to get back to the, you know, especially some of the, the more plant-based psychedelics is, is, they're master plants, they're teachers, um, and they're showing us how we can heal ourselves. But they're not going to do the work for us. It's it's on us to do the work. And, and so I think that's something that really needs to be um, considered is... Um, as you said, once you, once that door is open, it's, it's pretty tough to close and you can yeah. try and close it, but <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen. Um, yeah. and I tell a lot of people, I say, careful what you wish for, hmm. because, um, once, once you're on this path and it's a beautiful, beautiful path and saved a, a countless amounts of lives, but it takes, it takes continuous dedication and work. Mm. I have a couple of thoughts on a few things. You said um, you're, you were talking about we need to heal our relationship with the word medicine in the West. We also need to heal our relationship with nature itself where the plants come from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. to really fully appreciate and, and understand what they are doing for us when we're in ceremony mm-hmm. with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think a hundred percent, and I think you see a lot of, you think about the, the relationship we have with just, you know, I brought up community and that, that includes where we live. It includes, um, the, the land that we, we cultivate and, and build that community on and, and we've lost connection with that, you know? And, and I think you even saw the, um, I think it was last summer or the summer before the BC government now allows, doctors to write a prescription for outdoor parking passes and and things like that. And I think we've recognized like, oh, we've got to get back in touch with, with nature. And and I think that's what the plants definitely do for us and, and our own nature as well. We have to, we have to remember we're a part of that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, you, you, you see, um, a lot of conversation about, you know, how do we give back to to nature and and how do we do that and and I think the reminder a lot of the time is you know it's really at least in my experience um how comfortable do we want to make this place for us because the earth is going to be here whether you know we're here or or not uh, the earth is is going to be here it's it's how how much do we want to be in relationship with it or how uncomfortable do we want to make that relationship to the point where it's not even habitable for us anymore? Mm. And, uh, and that includes us. Right. And you can see the strength of it. I mean, when we were, when we were in the height of the pandemic and there was less travel and things, you could see nature coming back. You could see animals coming back Mm -hmm. to, if you were looking at, I think it was in Italy, the, the Venice canals, all of these fish started to come back and, Mm -hmm. She she's gonna be fine, That's <laughs> you right. know. That's it, right. If we if we don't continue to to hurt and ex- exploit her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I wanted to bring up is you were talking a lot about the the gut, like mm-hmm. the gut pain that you were going through. So, um, I'm you know that I'm also a certified sound therapist, and I also um, sound therapy practitioner. I should make mm-hmm. that distinction. Um, but uh, I also loop in traditional Chinese medicine from a sound aspect into mm. my sessions. And when someone complains that they have a lot of pain in their gut or they're noticing their digestion is off, in traditional Chinese medicine, that's related to worry. There's a worry imbalance mm-hmm. in, in the mm-hmm. stomach. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that resonates, but I was like, oh, no, I need to share that yeah. information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. No, and, and that, you know, again, going back to... Um, I, I think that um, what it felt very connected to was was this me being responsible as a young person and worrying about everybody else and and not worrying about myself. Or, you know, I remember being a, a very young kid and saying, you know, if everybody else would just take care of themselves, I would be fine. And um, and that I think the more I pushed down myself and tried to worry about everybody else, um, the more my body was trying to tell me, um, this ain't, mm-hmm. this ain't quite working. Yeah. yeah. You've got to look after <laughs> you too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'd love to uh, change tact a little bit and go back to numinous and sure. the, the genesis of it. Mm-hmm. So you launched it in 2018 Tell me about this, how this all came together. I've been following Numinous for a while, yeah. so I, I'd love to hear it from, from your perspective, yeah. how it all came to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, so going back to that, that first ayahuasca retreat that I went on, you know, I get this message of this is too important for you to be involved with screwing up. So leave it alone. And, um, and so I'm on the plane going back home and, and sitting with that and, and going, okay, like I, I totally hear that. Um, and I totally hear, um, I totally hear how someone with great, maybe great intentions and a lack of experience could really cause a lot of harm in the space. And, um, that was something that I was really sitting with. And so I came back home and I sat with that, that message. And I said, you know what? I I completely hear that. And all I want to do is just give back to something that saved my life. I, I feel like there needs to be some kind of reciprocity here. And, um, and so I started just reaching out to nonprofits and, and starting to understand just where I could, you know, maybe make a financial donation or something like that. And within like three weeks, I was talking to Health Canada and MAPS and there was this big kind of momentum and energy behind these conversations that I was having. And, you know, I was fortunate enough, I, I had no community uh, really around me who who knew about these experiences. And I was, I was extremely fortunate to meet some really amazing people in this sort of psychedelic community in Vancouver. And they were so accepting and so welcoming of me. And, um, and so I was having these conversations and, you know, people within the community were saying like, wow, Peyton, like, you, you know, you should, you should do something in the space. And I would always kind of be like, well, ayahuasca kind of told me to fuck <laughs> off. So I'm, I'm going to leave it alone. And they would, you know, kind of laugh and they would say, no, no, like, you know, we're the universe is sort of hitting you over the head with a hammer here. Like we think you should do something. And, and I really resisted that for quite a while. Um, and then I, I, but it just continued to build this momentum continued to build. And the more conversations I was having, um, with these different groups, the more I was realizing like philanthropy wasn't going to cut it. And, um, there was maybe more that I could, I could try and offer. Um, but I, but again, sitting with this message from ayahuasca and, and so I did the only thing that I felt was the right thing to do. And I booked another flight down to go sit with ayahuasca (laughs) again and, and kind of, yeah, talk to the source about that. And, um, and so that's what I did. And, and, uh, a number of months later went back down and, and sat with ayahuasca and, um, you know, received all of these, these, uh, beautiful insights that just about now really understanding the level of integrity, um, and significance and reverence that, um, you know, being involved with this kind of work really requires. And, um, and I kind of, you know, with that had sort of gotten, it it felt like an, an, sort of an initiatory step. And, and for me, the, the biggest thing was just, um, that this really needs to be like, I have to walk the walk and, and this needs to be in like a, um, it's a, it's a total lifestyle change. It's not just a, Oh, I'm going to change what I do for a living sort of thing. And, um, but on the last night, there's the dinner of the last night, there's sort of this crew change that happens. And, um, there was another 80 people at this retreat. Um, and so half of that 80 people leave and the new half of the new 80 people show up. And, um, 
And so I'm sitting with these insights and I'm kind of like, well, you know, is that kind of just my ego telling me what I wanted to hear? And, you know, am I projecting things? And um, my partner had come down with me at that time. And one of the other things that was coming up for me was that I had to, um, or had to is maybe the wrong word. I, I was strongly suggested to reach out to Gabor Mate when I, when I got home and um, I'd never met Gabor before. Um, obviously I knew who he was, but um, I was kind of, we were walking to that last dinner the night of the crew change. And I, and I say, to Victoria, I say, I have no idea why, but I have this very strong calling to reach out to Gabor Mate. And my, you know, she's used to me kind of saying crazy things. She's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, let's go get dinner. <laughs> and, and we get to dinner and Gabor Mate's daughter is sitting beside me at the dinner table. And I kind of went like, okay, that, mm-hmm. that, that, if you needed a sign, was, if there was that, any synchronicity, that, yeah. was, that was maybe it. Mm. And, um, you know, we had this very beautiful conversation. We actually never spoke about her dad once. We just talked about our own experiences and, um, we went back home and, and we exchanged some contact information and I went back home and a couple of weeks later, she sent me an email and said, uh, I think you should talk to my dad. And I said, probably. (laughs) And, uh, and Gabor and I met and, and he's really, I owe a lot to, to Numinous's existence to him. He was a huge guidance and and supporter for me. And, and, uh, that was really kind of the, the, the starting point for Numinous. And, and really, I would say the, the structure that, that came from Numinous was in the conversations I was having with all of these different groups, I was just asking, um, you know, what, what do you need? Like, what, what can I, what could I contribute that would be helpful? I don't, I don't want to get in the way of or replicate anything that's happening. And the same thing just kept coming up was just this need for infrastructure, I guess is the best way, but, but really how is this going to transition from not-for-profit research and advocacy to actually accessibility um, and, you know, that word accessibility is, is gotten a little muddy, I would say lately. Um, but really like, how do we, how do we make this touch people and how do we give more space, uh, for that? And so that's really what Numinous was started as, is, is just a, how do we, how do we provide, you know, these services for people and with the context of, um, you know, the medicine or the psychedelic experience is really, you know, the, it's a part of this much bigger commitment that, that people make in regards to, to their mental health and wellness and, and their healing. And, uh, so that's, that's what we look to build. So now it's, it's wild to, to kind of reflect back with, uh, you know, now multiple locations across Canada and the United States and, um, we do everything from, from ketamine assisted therapy to just traditional mental health services, um, work with maps and, and some of the MDMA work that they're doing. We have a number of psilocybin trials that we're supporting as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been quite a, quite a journey. Yeah, what a four year journey. There seems to be such a genuine intentionality behind Mm. Numinous as well. And I feel like you can really, you can really feel that in the stories that I've, you know, the mm. podcasts I've, I've heard you on and, and the way that you communicate what you do online. 
And um, I really, really love that. I have a question about the therapists that work for Numinous. Do you feel that it's important that they too have a psychedelic experience before they support people coming in? You know, it's it's that's a very active conversation at the moment. Um, and the the partnership that we have with Maps, um, Rick Doblin, who for anybody who doesn't know Rick, Rick is really the reason why psychedelics are where they are today. Um, he's he's such a pioneer, and uh, the work that that Maps has been able to do for over thirty five years now is really incredible. But um, that was where him and I really connected early on was, um, this, I, this experiential training, uh, thing. And personally, I I do feel like if you're going to sit with somebody and support somebody through a psychedelic experience, you do have to have, um, that you have to spend some time in the flight simulator before you start flying the plane. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that it's very important. Um, that being said, it can't, um, it certainly can't be the only criteria. And you see a lot of people at the moment who there's a lot of underground therapist training that happens and, you know, someone goes and has a psychedelic experience and does a weekend, you know, experiential underground training. And next thing you know, they're telling people that they're a, a psychedelic therapist with no understanding of, you know, how trauma really works like that. You, you do have to have both. Um, but I think that that experiential piece is, is quite important. Mm-hmm. I really agree. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know when I think about, because I know you're also a facilitator mm. as well, or you have facilitated mm-hmm. and just the idea of being able to, to hold space. So mm-hmm. that to me seems really important, whether you have had a psychedelic experience as a therapist or not, that portion for me feels really important having um, gone through a ceremony and felt really held and seen Mm -hmm. during it Mm -hmm. because it makes you feel very safe Mm -hmm. and that's the most important thing when you're going through something very intense yeah yeah for sure and and I think you know it's interesting even on the kind of like call it the business side but a couple years ago you saw this real um volition to psychedelics it always feels weird to call it like a psychedelic industry i feel like that's the wrong it's it's, you know we work in the healing space and we and psychedelics is just one of the tools that that gets used um but you saw a lot of interesting things happen in the space and and i would see these companies pop up or and again this is just my experience or my projection but you'd see some of these things and i would go like oh that's that's built by somebody who's probably never had a psychedelic experience <laughs> before. Um, and, and from a client, you know, the, th- the thing that I always want, the lens that we always think from at Numinous and, and it's, we're fortunate enough to have a really amazing group of people who have had their own experiences. And we always think from the perspective of a person who's walking through the doors at the first time is like, what would that person want to feel? What would that person want even the intention or the integrity of the organization, what would that person expect? And, and you have to think from that lens. And, and I think what's amazing about the utilization of psychedelics within the healing space is I think quote unquote success of, of these different groups is really going to be solely dictated by the outcomes of people getting the therapy. Um, you know, there's nothing to like 
patent or protect or or own in this space it's it's really comes down to success of of the people's outcomes Mm -hmm. and and I love that about this space and so for me um you know after those first experiences I I kind of went on this um I call it like the psychedelic crusade almost where, you know, I, I felt like I had to have a lot of these experiences in order to really understand and not, not just having psychedelic experiences for the sake of having psychedelic experiences, but also, you know, I've been so fortunate to be able to sit with different cultures and, and different, um, different ways of using these different, um, teachers, and and that's allowed me to to have a kind of quite a bit of depth and breadth in regards to experience. Certainly, um, not all rainbows and unicorns, <laughs> but <Nope. laughs> uh, but necessary for sure. Mm. Yeah. What has your team taught you at Numinous? Um, yeah, I think you know what we're trying to make a change in is really big and um you know if it was just the healthcare space that that is it's such a monstrous system that needs so much change and uh you know we're at this point right now if it doesn't matter whether you're talking about addiction suicide anxiety depression these are all numbers that continue to go up where we've greatly recognize that our unfortunately our our health system is failing us in regards to mental health um but you know going back to the conversation around accessibility accessibility isn't just how do we get people as many people treatment um as cheaply as possible that's that's certainly a part of it but it's also um you know we we do a lot of cultural safety and humility training how do you have practitioners that you know, can speak to such different cultural um, experiences that people have. And, you know, someone that that's such a huge part of this is is we've got to create a, a community of people doing this work who can who can make change within their own communities as opposed to an external coming in to to quote again quote unquote fix uh you know a problem within a community but you've got to inspire those communities to be able to do that work for themselves and i think my team just continues to to inspire and also remind you know the how many the different lenses that everybody really comes looking at this space from and you know culturally societally at the moment we have no shortage of of things that that I think psychedelics can make a very positive impact in but we've got to we've got to take people's experiences and consider them when we're when we're rolling out this this kind of more broad spread adoption versus you know hearing about a problem and then making the assumption that we have a solution for it and um and I think my team has has taught me that a ton and and I'm and I'm grateful for just the diversity of experience that that our, that my team has yeah I mm. know yeah, that's that's it's so I love that there's diversity on your team because I feel like and we all know this that life is nuanced history is nuanced mm. and so you know to to have a team that understands all of these 
these different nuances Mm -hmm. is really important, again, for that client to feel safe Mm -hmm. with who they're sitting with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super important, and I'm I'm glad to hear that you're you're doing that, and that your your definition of accessibility is much broader than just that financial mm-hmm. side of things. Mm-hmm. What's happening in the space right now that's making you feel really excited, or or something that you feel that people should be aware of or, or know about? Yeah, um, you know, to me, it's incredible. There's a lot of, I would say, a lot of sentiment that things aren't maybe moving fast enough or, um, but my experience is, I think it's just incredible how, um, you know, the immediate word that came to mind was quickly, but it's not necessarily even quickly. I would say there's significant changes happening that I think are really considerate and are really taking a lot into account. And that's great to see. And I think we're at this, kind of interesting moment of um, there's this huge cultural change. You know, I have people messaging me all day, every day of like, hey, I saw this picture of mushrooms or I saw this sweater in a H&M store that has psilocybin <laughs> mushrooms on it. Or So you're seeing this big cultural shift with it, which, you know, I, I think first and foremost, the education part of this is so important. And um and so to see that that's happening, I, I think at a, at a very intentional level is, is great. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of conversation at the moment of, of what is the right path for psychedelics to become legal? Is it the decriminalization movement and that everybody should just get access to psychedelics or should it be more of the kind of medical approval, um, kind of drug development model and um my feeling is like i i think it should be both i i do believe that everybody should everybody should be able to be um in charge of their own consciousness um and as long as they're not hurting or harming other people um that should be a a human right um but in the same conversation you know, the, the argument for decriminalization and everybody should be able to explore their own consciousness again. Yes. Agreed. But if I'm somebody who's deeply suffering with depression and I can't get out of bed, um, for someone to then say like, or expect that person can even consider exploring their own consciousness, I think is quite naive. And, and I think those people should be able to get support from the healthcare system. They should be able to get it and covered under insurance. They should be able to know where they can go, where it's safe to really um, explore this in a very intentional way. And so I think we're kind of right on the cusp of, of answering some really challenging questions around how do you make this, again, accessible and inclusive for everybody? And that means everybody. And, you know, I know for myself, like... Um, I couldn't even think about like, you know, using mushrooms to explore my own consciousness when I'm, when I'm questioning my mortality in the emergency room. Mm. Um, and I think more, I think that needs to be considered as we move through this is, um, I, I do think there needs to be more broad spread accessibility, but as much as it needs to be expansive, I think it needs to be deep. And, and I think that that depth really needs to be considered. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that education piece. For sure. I just came to mind a really dear friend um, and I were talking about psychedelics and I was telling him about my experience. And I asked him, would you ever 
is it something that you think you would be open to? And he was like, I I don't know. He's like, I, I don't know if I opened the door, if I could come back. Mm. And I was like, oh, that's so mm-hmm. interesting. There is that fear of what if I lose myself if I do this? Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, again, I, I think psychedelics can help a lot of people, but it's definitely not for everybody. And that, I think that's the other really important piece too is like, you know, you walk around Vancouver and there's a mushroom dispensary on, you know, it's kind of reflective of like the cannabis space. It's, it's everybody's microdosing now. Um, and these are really powerful tools. And, you know, a, a hammer can be used to build a house or a hammer can be used to hit yourself in the hand with. Um, and I think that really needs to be considered. And I know, you know, a lot of people might not even be, I know from my, just speaking from my own personal experience, you know, part of my healing journey was, um, I had some regressed memories from my childhood that I had no idea existed. And those memories, you know, again, starting my mental health journey when I was 12 had never come up. I knew something was there, but I, I could not bring up those memories. And, uh, about a year ago actually was when those memories actually came up and it, and it completely blindsided me. And I was fortunate enough that I, you know, had the support that I, that I have around me, but, um, this can bring up a lot for people and you have to be ready for that. And, um, you know, the amount of stories out there of someone who's doing mushrooms with their friends and all of a sudden, you know, the, the the stuff starts coming up, um, that can be really, really overwhelming for people and you could not be prepared for that. So I think that education piece is so important and, and a real, yeah, a real understanding of, of what you're, what you're getting into. Mm -hmm. And knowing that there are uh, places that you go to for, for help in case that, that does happen, but I do agree. It it may not be for, for, for anyone, Mm -hmm. everyone, I should Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. I would love to explore before we close the conversation. Um, you and I were lightly talking about sound and mm. and ceremony, and uh, I went to the East Forest um, show mm-hmm. concert mm-hmm. ceremony concert that mm-hmm. happened here in Vancouver. But it was a series that you were doing across Canada and the United States, and I'd love to get your perspective on where sound fits into these journeys yeah. with psychedelics yeah. or medicines i think i mean and this comes from you know someone that that has attempted and and, and very badly uh, attempted to play an instrument before <laughs> but uh, but i i think sound you know you look at the indigenous use of psychedelics and there's always a very strong musical component to that whether it's ikaros and in, in ayahuasca ceremonies um you know for me when someone says ask me like what is ayahuasca um, the brew itself or the substance itself is, is maybe 10% of what ayahuasca is to me. And, and, and a huge part of that is this, is the songs that get sung. And, uh, you know, you see that whether it's iboga, um, wachuma ceremonies, psil- uh, traditional psilocybin ceremonies, there's, there's, there's a musical component that is a huge, huge part of that. And I think it doesn't get enough recognition i would say in the sort of like above ground research or more kind of clinical work and i think it does a number of things i think it gives uh it gives an experience that can be felt without uh 
intellect or or uh, uh, figuring out really it gets us back in touch with our feelings and our emotions and it takes us on this invocative ride that we can have either alone or together and I think you know the East Forest events that we were fortunate enough to be a part of um, you know was just such a, an amazing uh, expression of community and you know the 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 concerts that uh, that were held were you know about 500 people and everything from the never done anything like this before no psychedelic experience no even like real ceremonial experience all the way to you know the deeply experienced and just with a person playing that music all 500 of those people could have a shared experience and connect with each other. And mm-hmm. I think that that's so powerful and so profound. And, and I think something that, that needs to be a really significant part of this work going forward, you know, even from a, a sort of therapeutic application, there's, there's always a musical component to that. And it's, and it's a huge ally for the practitioner. You know, it, it keeps, it holds a content, a container and, you know, the set and setting comes up all the time, obviously, within psychedelic containers. But what what sound does is it creates that safe container. It gives somebody something to experience within. And uh, and I think it's it's hugely, hugely, hugely important. Um, and and similarly, I think it, it also sets this. Um, it's it's a range that also is so um diverse you know i think that's the one thing that sound does is there's there's there it removes all of the sort of uh conditions or boxes that we put ourselves in and you can have two people who are having two extremely different experiences listen to the same thing at the same time and both be deeply, deeply affected. And, and I think that that, that field that gets created sets this common, uh, or collective experience within the diversity of that experience as well, that I think is, is so important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, from a music theory standpoint, um, I grew up playing piano and the alto saxophone, uh, and had to learn some of this, but you know, certain chords will, evoke and elicit certain feelings within within you like an, an e minor will make you feel really sad maybe bittersweet mm. but it's still really really beautiful um you know you'll have a major chord and that will feel more expansive and that will feel more joyful mm. and uh i i did a few there's i know you probably heard of this company wave paths mm-hmm. and um i somehow was able to be become part of their beta community and they were doing these deep listening events where you could join virtually and these deep listening events were about 50 minutes Mm. and I the first one I did I had such um, a profound experience like it was almost like it was bringing up old memories and I it was like I was going on a hero's journey Mm. and it was all music and it was all sound I didn't microdose it was just Mm. the sound and I came out of that and I was like, wow, <laughs> like I really felt catharsis mm-hmm. out of that. Well, I, and I think that that's a great, I think that's a great word. I, and I think, um, you know, again, going back to this, uh, you know, our emotions are these things that we 
we push down that that these different experiences sort of bring up like that's what that that sound does is it it's like is it gives us a safe space and a and a a path to follow um to unlocking some of those emotions and things that we've not allowed ourselves to feel and that are ultimately making us anxious or depressed or um and i think you know, when we ask somebody, how are you doing? We usually say, how are you feeling? And, and I think music brings us back in touch with just feeling without the, the mind trying to, um, yeah, make, make the figuring out happen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think it's so important. Yeah. And, and I learned, and I thought this was so beautiful because it's almost like this cycle of, of life and death that sound is the first sense that you develop in the womb. Hmm. It's also the last sense to go before you die. And that's why they often say, if you're sitting with a loved one who is going to pass to keep on talking to them. Wow. Huh. Which is beautiful because you, that is what they'll hear as they pass on mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's beautiful yeah yeah it really is and and I, what i will say about the east forest ceremony um, music ceremony was also to go back to um, setting mm. he was in the center of the room and everybody brought yoga mats or some were set up already and everybody was at a ground level mm -hmm. with each other which gave this real sense of of intimacy and i really feel like that was quite um it was so connective. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're, we're definitely excited for more. Yes. I, I can't yeah. wait. I can't wait. And for, for anyone uh, listening who doesn't know East Forest, please look him up on, on Spotify. He's an incredibly beautiful, um, ambient music mm -hmm. musician. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yes, you will enjoy it. Your ears will thank you. That's right. <laughs> Well, I am mindful of the time. I know you're a busy man. I just have a couple more questions yeah. for you. Um, my second to last question, actually my third to last question is, um, what would you want to say to your mother right now in this very moment about what she means to you? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is the amount of life, the amount of life that I've been able to experience because of um, the amount of life that, that she experienced. Um, really, you know, the, the um, I would want her to know that her experience, all the good, all of the bad, all that she has experienced in her life has made such a profoundly positive impact on my own life. And, um, it's something that I honor and am so grateful for. And, uh, you know, I, I now have a daughter who, uh, um, my, my commitment is, is to keep that, that path going. And, and, uh, my, my hope is that I can show up for her in the way that my mom showed up for me. Mm -hmm. And if you were going to, if it wasn't me sitting across from you and it was your younger self, um, young Peyton who had chronic pain and had to grow up really, really quickly, if you were going to 
tell him about life mm. from your perspective now, mm. what would you tell him? I don't know if I think I would want to just give him a huge hug. I think, um, you know, to know that, um, to know that he can trust himself and, uh, and that, um, it's got to start from there and, and that, uh, experiences at times can be challenging, but if, if you trust yourself and, and listen to yourself and, and connect with yourself, um, that it will turn out better than you could think. Mm. And my final question that I ask every guest with what you do, what is it that you want to leave behind in the world? Yeah. Um, hmm. I think, and, and this will sound super cliche, but I think um, if I can, if I can leave this place a little better than than uh, how I showed up, that's really you know when I started Numinous, it was um, I just want to be able to have one person um, have the experience that I did, and you know I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, get on a plane and and go to do ayahuasca a lot of people so so many people are not that fortunate and so um my hope is is that i can just impact one life in a in a positive way uh in the way that my life you know has been positively impacted by so many so hmm. yeah. beautiful if people want to find you follow you connect with you how can they find you how can they find numinous yeah numinous um you can go to our website numinous.com or follow us on on social uh and then myself peyton nyquist uh at all the all the social whatever they are that are out there <laughs> amazing thank you so much for being in here thank today you. having this conversation sharing so much about yourself. I can't wait to continue to watch what you do and what Numinous does in the world. And I can't wait for more conversations because I feel like there's going to be many more. <laughs> Me too. Really <laughs> Online to and it. off. Yeah, thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, thank you for being here and for listening. To learn more about today's guest, visit the episode page for show notes and links on wearethecraft.com. You can find the entire podcast archive here or explore more conversations with past guests on Spotify and Apple. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on these platforms, including YouTube, to get notified when new episodes drop. Any likes and shares on social media are deeply appreciated too. Sound and audio engineering for the show are by Andrew and Jay Bagaspis. All guest portraits and images are by Juno Kim. Appreciate you all and see you again soon.